Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is the Tom Hartman Program. And welcome to the program today. We've got a lot coming up. Professor Michael Mann will be with us. We're going to talk about the Earth's tipping points with regard to climate change. Are we closer than we think? This is a little concerning. We've got a crazy alert today. Why did Paul Ryan do psychological research on Donald Trump? Seriously. And the California election experience. We'll get into that how long before the GOP starts talking again about compassionate conservatism. And I also want to get into the real crime that General Milley exposed and kind of laid bare. We'll talk about that in just a minute. But first, I have a question for you. Given what happened in California, where Gavin Newsom won in a blowout against Larry Elder, a guy who is basically pitching what has become the standard Republican line, which is we don't need no stinking masks, we don't need no stinking vaccines, we don't trust the, uh, our election officials, uh, if Republicans didn't win, it was fraud. Although Larry Elder, you know, facing a 30% blowout, basically said, okay, I, I lost the election. God bless him for that, right? At least he acknowledged it. Although his website the day before the election had said it was election fraud was why he lost. But nonetheless, these Republican positions that are going to become absolutely essential in the next six months as you know primary 2022 primary season every single member of the u.s house of representatives is up for re-election next year every single member 100 percent of them and probably a majority of state elected officials across the country state senators state members of the house or assembly or whatever they call it in 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 their particular states are up for re-election and they face primary elections and the primary elections typically happen mostly you know next spring and on the republican side to get through the primary election they've got to do this whole yeah i'm with trump and you know no masks and no vaccines and blah, 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 blah. right and i believe that the reason why that is is because they want joe biden to fail they want the pandemic to continue they wanted to hurt our economy. And it's interesting. He had private meetings with Kirsten Cinema and with Joe Manchin. Nobody has said a word. Cinema's office said they were productive. Manchin's office hasn't said anything. But in any case, the question is, how long before the GOP stops talking Trump because they realize that they're all going to end up like Larry Elder 
and starts talking like George W. Bush. In other words, goes back to this thing of, well, we're compassionate conservatives and we just want little government. We just want to privatize Medicare to make it more efficient. We just want to turn Social Security over to the big New York banks to, to increase its, its uh, survivability, its viability. Uh, we, we just want to privatize all the nation's public schools because, you know, for-profit does things better. How long before they start talking like that again instead of the crazy? I mean, just consider what the Republicans have been doing in the last few months. Greg Prentice down in Florida was a major, major Trump guy. On Facebook, he was railing against COVID-19 restrictions. He was a software developer in the Tampa area. He headed up the local Republican Party's Election Integrity Committee. And he refused to get vaccinated. And he showed up at the hospital a couple of days ago, experiencing brain fog and having difficulty breathing, was put on a ventilator and died the next day. And two days after he died, according to the Tampa Bay Times, the people around him, or you know, his Republican buddies, are claiming that he was killed by the hospital. Honest to God, on, on Facebook, I, you know, is this a winning strategy for Republicans? On Facebook, this guy writes, Tampa General Hospital, ER, and ICU doctors are criminals and murderers. They intubate everyone and stick them on a ventilator for no reason. All, cap, all capital letters, no reason. Just out of uh, precaution, as the doctor told me, without consent from the family. Tampa General Hospital is evil. We lost Greg Prentice, a mentor, mentor to many in Hillsborough County, due to the engineered virus. Really? You think this is going to, like, you know, I get it. There's like, you know, the QAnon crazies, but... You think this is going to go beyond that? And then, you know, take, take this, the, the step beyond this. In the middle of the pandemic, Mark Sumner writing about this over at Daily Kos, by the way, in the middle of a pandemic, his headline, in the middle of a pandemic, Republicans permanently strip power from public health officials. And you just get these numbers. I mean, this is mind boggling. Uh, Sumner starts out by saying, imagine that right after 9-11, you know, when the, you had three buildings, two buildings collapse, and then a third one a little later, uh, uh, you know, fires and, and disasters. Imagine if Rudy Giuliani, the mayor at that point, had said, you know, I'm going to shut down the fire department. While the buildings were still on fire. Kaiser Health News, he notes, reports that in 26 states, Republicans, quote, took away powers state and local officials used to protect the public against infectious diseases. Now these are authorities, these are powers, governmental powers that date back to the flu pandemic of 1918 and before. Sumner writes, now in over half the nation, Republicans have acted to permanently weaken the powers of public health officials. Mask mandates have been completely banned in some states, including Arkansas, where the masks were declared to be a burden on public health. Idaho gave county commissioners the veto power over public health orders. Kansas and Tennessee no longer allow health officials to order a school closed, no matter how dire the circumstances. Texas and Florida governors issued executive orders that stripped power from city and county officials and school boards and even private businesses to require the use of masks. Five states are blocking masks from stopping COVID right now. Nine states have taken away the ability for anyone to order a mask mandate, no matter what the threat. In addition, Mark Sumner writes, 16 other states have taken away the authority of local health officials to issue such mandates or to require quarantines or to close businesses, schools, or public facilities. 
17 states, Mark Sumner writes, made it illegal for either government agencies or private businesses to require proof of COVID vaccination. So how does this win elections for Republicans? What am I missing here? And if this takes down the Republican Party next year, and I think there's a good chance that there's going to be a lot of Republican losses next year, and not just because so many of their own voters have died, but because I think, you know, Americans are waking up. You have over 60% support across the United States, enthusiastic support for Joe Biden's mask and vaccine mandates. If the Republican Party goes down in flames in 2022, are they going to double down on voter fraud? Are they going to continue start, you know, the, the doubling down on neo-fascism? Are, are they going to continue to try to take the United States in the same direction that Viktor Orban took Hungary or Vladimir Putin took Russia or Jair Bolsonaro is taking Brazil? Is that their strategy? Or is the GOP going to collapse? And if it collapses, what comes out of the ashes? My personal prediction, and I, you know, <laughs> I have been wrong on a lot of predictions, so, you know, just, this is just my personal opinion. I've been right a lot, too. But my personal prediction is that the, the Republicans are going to get their asses kicked in the elections in 2022. And... In 2023, in anticipation of the 2024 election, they're going to try to go back to Paul Ryan, John McCain, Ronald Reagan, George W. Bush, uh, Republicanism, and uh, maybe even re-embrace Liz Cheney. We'll see. I could be way out there. It looks right now like that's impossible. And in some ways, the GOP embrace, the ongoing GOP embrace of Trump and Trumpism is a good thing for the Democratic Party because the more right-wing crazies like Larry Elder who get elected in the primaries between this fall and the end of next spring, the more Democrats will be able to run ads like uh, Rachel Bitkofer's strike pack is running. I retweeted one of them. You can see it on my Twitter feed. This is brilliant, an absolutely brilliant ad the more you're going to see those kinds of ads popping up only customized to individual Republicans. So is this going to work? And then I suppose the flip side of this is, is the Democrats' strategy of trying to get this, get this pandemic under control and trying to lower drug prices going to work. Bernie was tweeting about this. It's what caught my eye. And then I saw the piece in the New York Times, you know, that a congressman from Portland or for the Portland area, Kurt Schrader. He's our one of three Democrats on the committee. By one vote, one vote, this committee could have passed legislation that would allow Medicare to negotiate drug prices. But Schrader's been taking money from Big Pharma, and so he screwed the whole thing up. And it's putting the entire Biden plan, the entire Biden three and a half trillion dollar plan in jeopardy. Because our sellout Democratic congressman here from Oregon decided that the money from Big Pharma was more important to him than I, it just it makes me crazy. I've been twi- I tweeted him. I said, you know, Representative Schrader, please tell me why were you the vote? I mean, all the Republicans were opposed to Medicare negotiating drug prices, but Democrats. 
So, you know, will the Democratic Party take back the party? But uh, I think more importantly, how long before the GOP starts talking about compassionate conservatism again? What is the future of the Republican Party? Are they going to continue, you know, trashing vaccines and masks? It doesn't seem to be working for them. This is the Tom Hartman Program. I got a crazy alert for you about Paul Ryan, and then I'll be picking up your phone calls. Okay, our crazy alert for the day. Paul Ryan studies psychology. Seriously. Paul Ryan was Speaker of the House, the head Republican in the U.S. House of Representatives when Donald Trump won the election in 2016, or won the Electoral College technicality. He actually lost the election by three million votes. And I think we need to say that over and over and over again. When, when in 2016, when Donald Trump lost the election by three million votes, but became president through the technicality of the Electoral College. Paul Ryan was Speaker of the House and, you know, head, head Republican. And a, f- a friend of his, a donor of his, a, a, who was based out of New York City, actually, a rich guy who happened to be a doctor, reached out to Paul Ryan and said, you need to, quote, you need to understand what narcissistic personality disorder is in order to deal with Donald Trump. End quote. There's a, a, a whole story about this. I mean, this is, uh, this is from Bob Woodward's book. So at first, Ryan was like, what? Narcissistic personality disorder? Come on. You know, why do I have to study psychology just because Donald Trump got elected? But he did. He, he, he at least Googled it. <laughs> and what he found was that, oh, my God, Donald Trump actually is a pathological narcissist. He actually is mentally ill. And so Ryan started digging through this psychology of narcissism, of, of uh, narcissistic personality disorder. And out of that, and, and the thing that, that actually closed the deal for Paul Ryan, uh, ultimately, according to uh, Bob Woodward and uh, Robert Costa's new book, is that uh, Trump couldn't understand why he should denounce neo-Nazis who rallied in Charlottesville because, Trump said, these people love me. Why should I, why should I trash talk them? Why should I put them down? So, you know, you're crazy alert. Yes, Paul Ryan studies psychology. How weird does it get? Dave in New Brunswick, New Jersey. Hey, Dave, what's on your mind today? Hey, I heard on YouTube that there was a survey of what is important to you for your Republican representative. Mm-hmm. And 59% of Republicans said that understanding that Donald Trump was denied the presidency in 2020, which I think is insane. But I use this as proof to not only disagree with you, I just want to go a step further. And well, hang on just a second, Dave, before you do that, just couldn't that also mean that the Republican Party is just shrinking? I mean, you got 59% uh, of what uh, used to be... Even if it is, got, there were 72 million votes for Donald Trump right. in 2020. How much shrinking could it do? Yeah, okay, I'll give and, you that. Uh, and, and a lot of Democrats might be apathetic in the next election. Yeah, so we just, we, we have about 30 seconds to the break, Dave. Uh, your point? 
Well, my point is that once upon a time, uh, we had, well, I, I know this is a, a step, but I'll bring it to the Republican issue. Uh, Walt Disney went bankrupt three times, once after introducing Mickey Mouse. And the reason is he was able to come back is because society would cut people a break. We didn't have right. credit checks and whatnot. I'm using this as an example that people today just feel powerless and therefore they need a sense of agency. Mm-hmm. So that's why they go for these crazy antics. So that, yeah, yeah. I, I get it. I, I totally get it. It's it's a populist response to neoliberalism is the way that a, a political economist or a you know a political analyst would put it. And I think you're absolutely right, David. It's and it's why, by the way, Bernie did as well as Trump in a lot of those states, in a lot of these very red states, like West Virginia. Here on the Tom Hartman program, speaking the truth to multinational corporations, we'd really rather you didn't know. Albert in Big Sandy, Texas. Hey, Albert, what's on your mind today? Hey, good morning, Tom. Hey, Albert. I think that the voter ID, we should call their bluff and go all in. When I vote in Texas, I showed them my driver's license, and they put it under a reader. Now, I don't know what popped up on the screen, but then I was allowed to vote. Mm-hmm. Everybody's got a driver's license or a Texas ID or state ID. If you if you use your ID, the, dri- the address on your driver's license is the precinct you vote in. You can get rid of the greater voter suppression tool, and that is voter registration. If you not vote registered to vote, you can't vote. Now, how are you going to refuse somebody to vote because they're not registered to vote? Well, ex- except for North Dakota. North Dakota does not require voter registration. You just show up and there vote. There you go. That's right. That's the way it should be throughout the whole country. I agree. Voter registration was put into place back in the 1800s, in the late 1800s, as a way of basically keeping out black people. And, uh, you know, uh, right. this is before the failure of Reconstruction in 1876. Well, voter registration could be used as a party tool that... It if is. you want to vote in the party primaries, you have to be registered with right. them. Right, right. But as far as the general, because that's a private club, they can let anybody, whoever they want to, vote in their primary. Although the states do administer those those elections, and sure. that's why that bleed over sure. is happening. Yeah. Yeah, but, but, but being able to remove people off of the voter registration without you knowing about it for some stu- you know, reason like, oh, you didn't vote in four years. Right. That's, that's just that's just not right. I know, but the Supreme Court said, it's, you know, when Ohio was doing that, when the Republicans, uh, Secretary of State in Ohio was just wiping out voters in black areas in, in some of Ohio's largest cities, the Supreme and Court Florida. said, that's cool. Yeah, and that needs to be stopped. Yeah, I agree. By, by, <laughs> I agree with you, Albert. I absolutely agree. Thank you very much for the call. It's uh, And that's why we need... You know, the John Lewis Voting Rights Act and whatever the the replacement for H.R. 1 that the Democrats are coming up with. Uh, now Joe Manchin's on this thing. Hey, let's you know, bring it on. Let's do it. This is the Tom Hartman Program. <laughs> Back with uh, uh, more of the news of the day <laughs> and your calls. I got to tell you about General Milley, my thoughts on General Milley, too. Hey, it's Kaylee. 
Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly, patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. So welcome back. All right. Bob Woodward's book has dropped and Robert Costa, they wrote it together. And in this book, they are citing the apparent fact that General Mark Milley on two different occasions basically stepped in to stop, either prevent Donald Trump from starting a war or actually reached out to his contemporary in China about how we were not going to strike China, that he was going to prevent Donald Trump from trying to, to use an international incident to maintain his own power. And he did this because he was hearing chatter that China was freaked out and they were thinking maybe they should do a preemptive strike or something like that. And he was like, let's just, let's just cool this all down. Now, in doing that, the Joint Chiefs, the Constitution doesn't have any mention of the Joint Chiefs. The Joint Chiefs is not in the command structure for declaring war or engaging in war, and it's not covered by the, mili- the authorization to use military force. So Milley, what Milley did was almost certainly unconstitutional and possibly even illegal. And so he's getting all kinds of crap for it, but he's not the true villain here. And it's not the advisors to Donald Trump who are the true villains either. I get it. You know, Roger Stone was advising Trump on all this. He came up with the whole stop the steal thing back in 2016 when they thought that Trump was going to lose to Hillary Clinton. That's when they were ready to roll out Stop the Steal. They had branded it and everything. They had a website. But and and, you know, and he was also an advisor to Nixon. And back when Nixon was president, James Schlesinger, his defense secretary, did essentially the same thing Mark Milley did. He, he convened a whole bunch of military folks and said, don't, you know, whatever Nixon tells you to do, don't do it. But nobody's talking about the real villains here. In the, in the case of Nixon, Barry Goldwater walked over to the White House and said, you know, the Republicans have decided we're going to vote with the Democrats in the Senate to remove you from office if you don't resign. And the Republicans in the United States Senate had two chances. Once in 2019, well, the second time was, at, you know, after Trump was already had already lost the election, but they had two chances to remove Trump from office or to forbid him from ever again running for office. And they took a, they whiffed on both. They took a pass on both. 50 Republican senators. General Mark Milley is not the villain in this story. The villain in this story are the Republicans who did not have the courage of people like Barry Goldwater back in the day to stand up for what's right rather than just going for what's convenient or expedient. And I think we just need to plant that flag in the in the in the ground It's like nobody is talking about the fact you know everybody's talking about Milley and nobody's pointing out that a whole year earlier the Republicans could have removed Trump 
You're listening to the Tom Hartman Program. And as weird as Mike Pence is, you know, in his whole, you know, periods for Pence and abortions, I don't think that he would have tried to start a war to stay in power. So let me just be very clear. This we had. I mean, John Adams was actually with the X Y Z affair was accused of of treason that he was that he was ginning up a conflict with France. This was in the election of 1800 when Adams was president. He was running for re-election. Jefferson was vice president. He was running against him, and and uh, the newspapers on Jefferson's side were promoting the idea that the year earlier the X Y Z affair, which is where Adams had sent three guys over to France to negotiate with the French, and they came back and said they tried to bribe us, and it was a whole messy thing. And it led to basically a Cold War between America and French, kind of a, a standoff at sea. Uh, the Jefferson folks were saying uh, this was he was just doing this to get himself elected, right? You've got Richard Nixon, Richard Nixon's defense secretary, James Schlesinger, saying. And his uh, chief of staff, General, I, I'd have to go back and look at my article again, whoever it was. Anyway, his chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff saying, don't push the button. You know, if Nixon says push the button, don't do it, basically. And then you had General Milley doing the same thing. The difference between these is that in Nixon's case, Republicans actually removed Nixon from office. In our case, in the case of Donald Trump, Republicans had two different opportunities to remove Trump from office after he was impeached, after it was obvious that he had been, he tried to bribe the president of Ukraine to manufacture dirt on Joe Biden. He was trying to get Ukraine to interfere in our election the way that he had tried to and successfully gotten Russian to, Russia to interfere in our election in 2016. You know, they hacked the DNC and gave that information and all, you know, off to the races, right? So Trump tried it again. He tried, he tried committing treason twice. And every single Republican in the United States Senate knew it, and they knew it in detail, because the House impeachment managers laid this out in detail. And still, 50 Republicans in the United States Senate, who just 50 years earlier had said, or 45 years earlier had said about Richard Nixon, oh my God, we can't tolerate this. And what did Nixon do? He paid for a break-in at the Democratic National Headquarters at the Watergate, which was chump change compared to, to trying to bribe a foreign leader to manufacture dirt on your political opponent. I mean, it doesn't get worse than that. But 50 Republicans said, oh yeah, well, you know what Trump did, it's just fine with us. Now, we're not happy about it, but we're not going to do anything about it. Really? Amazing. Larry in Los Angeles. Hey, Larry, what's on your mind today? Hey, um, if California had the same death rate as Texas, we would have seen 16,000 more American deaths right here in California. Wow. If, if we had the same number that Florida has, we would see 24,000. Florida sees 600 more deaths per million than California does. All you have to do is multiply that times the yeah. 40 million. Yeah, you're the numbers guy, Larry. That's that's amazing, and and and, and it illustrates the difference between blue states and red states in, ter in terms of policy. 
And so but basically what Texas and Florida has done is they put a price on the head of a, every American and decided that, hey, to keep the economy going, we're willing to let those people die so that we can keep our economy going. Yeah, but that I was during that, the I, Trump time. And now they're willing to let them die in order to try to hurt Joe Biden. Yes. On top of that, I think they've done the math. They probably know that this thing is killing more minorities than whites. And they're saying, hey, we're benefiting because we're getting rid of more Democrats than we're getting rid of our own people. I can't believe that they haven't done that math. And the reason why they're so gung ho about making sure that they kill their own people in their own state. Yeah. Yeah, I think you can expand that logic to include their refusal to expand Medicaid as well yeah. and not provide health care to those same folks. Yeah, amazing. Okay, thank you very much, Larry. Uh, Larry's the man with the statistics. He's, he's always got some great numbers for us. <laughs> Jerry in San Francisco. Hey, Jerry, what's on your mind today? Hi, Tom. I'm just reveling in the fact that we in California made fools out of Republicans on Tuesday. But I want to focus more on some states that are way different than the results that took place in California on Tuesday. Pennsylvania put a, gets a subpoena out for 7 million files on voters. Oh, yeah. That lists their driver's licenses, partial Social Security, and all the communications between state and county officials. Biden won by 80, let's say 81,000 votes in Pennsylvania. And uh, if the courts rule in favor of, of this grab here, that state just joining like Arizona, Georgia, and so forth, is going to be in jeopardy. Yeah. And I, and I really think that, uh, you know, you take a look at Arizona, for example, you know, the quote-unquote audit took voting machines. Did they even return them yet? Tom, I don't know if they uh, the, the county can't take them back. Uh, well, I mean, I mean, maybe they can take them back and dispose of them, but uh, the yeah. voting machines have been so compromised in Maricopa County, Arizona, that the, the county has to spend millions, maybe tens of millions of dollars to replace absolutely everything. And it's, and it's that, all, by the way, in violation of federal law, and I'm still scratching my head right. as to why Merrick Garland hasn't done anything about it. And he you sent know, them a nasty letter. Well, <laughs> when it goes through the courts, it takes so long, yeah. and I'm not even sure, you know, it, it, it could bump right up to the 2024 elections. And then, of course, if it goes to the ultimate ruling group, the Supreme Court, I don't have a lot of faith that they're going to look at any kind of challenge to this as in favor of the plaintiffs. And then on TomHartman.com, where, where you pointed out that uh, 80,000 people have been legally thrown off, or 108,000 people have been legally thrown off the voting rolls in Wisconsin, these are surgical strikes. And I think that mm -hmm. you and Greg Callis have done a great job at focusing in on, like, you could get a whole bunch of people, new new uh, voters, and voting in places like California, and it won't make a damn difference when you have these states, and Michigan is going through the same thing. Michigan has a, any, a Democratic Secretary of State, so they're not yeah. doing racially or politically targeted purges. But Texas is. No. Georgia is. Well, I mean, these are states that very well could be purple states right now if they just kept their sure. voting rolls clean. And you know, Greg Palace was saying, too, though, the focus is in Milwaukee. And Milwaukee yeah. is a, a big African-American uh, community. Uh, I'd love to hear you do a deeper dive on this because it's a very, very dangerous thing that's happening. Yeah. 
Yeah, it really is. I can't speak to the Milwaukee or to the Wisconsin experience. I thought that Wisconsin had a Democratic Secretary of State. Maybe I'm wrong. Wisconsin has a Democratic governor. So, you know, I would be surprised if they were doing voter purges specifically to try to influence the outcome of the elections. But we saw this done clearly in Florida in 2000 by Jeb Bush, you know, throwing 90,000 African-Americans off the voting rolls. I mean, it was just a naked attempt, the whole that whole program that Chris Kobach was running across, you know, some 20 states was just, you know, just that. Jerry, thank you for the call. Dave in Federal Way, Washington. Hey, Dave, what's on your mind today? Yeah, hey, Tom. I called to mention something I know about Millie mm-hmm. and something I know about that situation. Look, like I told you once before, I was raised in Illinois, and my best friend when I was young, his father was a true Nazi. I mean, he was in the Hungarian army, and they, you know, his, his, the, the people that trained him were Nazi Germans. He was very loyal to the Nazi ideals, all right? All right. Now, I started noticing this change in, in American conservatives. And let me just bring this back to Milley. Look, I am no huge fan of General Milley. But Trump and his advisors, they started using these tactics. Like, remember Andrew McCabe? What took him down. Well, before his pension, before he could receive his pension. Right, the day before. uh, General General McMaster. Trump said General McMaster could not brief. There was another one I went, oh. Colonel Vinman, who I have nothing but respect for, the right wing, I listen to a lot of right wing media because, like I said, my not, you know, I'm, I'm fascinated with this fascism, right? They were saying that Colonel Vinman said that General Milley was wrong. And I have nothing but respect for Colonel Vinman, right? But, anyways, this, this pattern that Trump and his advisors had is to hurt people, all right? Yeah. And what they were going to do with Milley is that he was doing, Trump was doing middle-of-the-night appointments. Now, we can all just laugh about these appointments, like the Cash Patel guy. There's others. We can laugh about these appointments and say, well, it was just Trump's drinking buddies. He's trying to help them out, beef up their resume on the way out. Those people had power, Tom, and they were trying to put Millie out of the loop. They were trying to peer him out. Millie, for whatever reason, refused to be peered out. And what he did may have saved the earth, Tom, and that's not hyperbole. No, I, I agree with you. You know, if Trump thought he could get away with it, I think he would have declared a nuclear war to stay in power. Yeah, I think he's that nuts. Dave, thank you for the call. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Our book today in the Tom Hartman Book Club is The Big Cheat, How Donald Trump Fleeced America and Enriched Himself and His Family by New York Times bestselling author David K. Johnston. This is from the introduction. The majority of Americans found themselves in uncertain economic circumstances in 2015, many in scary straits. Living paycheck to paycheck, even with two working adults in the family, had become the norm in America. By 2015, many people had been down so long, walloped by economic shocks in 2000 and 2008, they believed the future was not President Ronald Reagan's mourning in America, but endless debt and potential homelessness. The rent was too high, the wages too low. It was a time of anxiety for most, even as those at the top gathered riches beyond the imagining of any generation before them. It was a perfect time for a master con artist to lay waste to the desperate and cheat them of all they had, all the while telling them that he was really their friend and helper. Donald Trump was the man for that time. Trump was a master huckster. 
He had successfully fleeced investors, cheated workers and vendors, ripped off students of his fake university, and outmaneuvered banks that loaned him more than a billion dollars that he never paid back. He had even cheated novice roulette players at one of his casinos in what was supposed to be the most heavily regulated industry in America. And he'd gotten away with it. He'd never been arrested, never been charged with a crime, even though Mayor Ed Koch of New York City once said he deserved 15 days in jail for sales tax evasion. He'd even gotten away with forgery, as his own tax lawyer and accountant testified under oath in one of his two known civil trials for income tax fraud, both of which he lost. While Trump was known in New York society as a cheat, a liar, a manipulator, and a deadbeat, and although he had been fined $200,000 for replacing women and minorities in an attempt to placate his biggest casino customer, the worst that had happened to him was lawsuits, fines, and being shunned by some at high society affairs like the annual Met Gala in Manhattan. But that was not the Donald Trump most Americans knew, or thought they knew. Certainly not those who live far beyond New York City and Atlantic City. To much of the American public, Donald Trump was a hero, a larger-than-life business genius who could turn anything to gold while thumbing his nose at the American aristocracy. He was a modern Midas with a series of trophy wives and endless riches, and he ate the very same fast food they did. Trump created this image on the NBC television network, for which for years aired his show, The Apprentice, and Celebrity Apprentice. The shows made the network a fortune. They earned Trump the cash he needed to pose as a multi-billionaire. And more importantly, they made him famous in what he called the real America of small towns, farmland, and cities where no one wore bespoke suits or designer dresses. And he had that signature line, you're fired, which in a perverse way gave relief to people who knew that they could be fired at any time and for no good reason. His television shows were no more real than the paint that made his name appear to be carved in gold letters. It was fool's gold all the way for anybody who believed his protean story. To anyone who understood business, his show was laughable. But his audience was largely people who had never been in a boardroom or an executive suite, didn't know what was taught in management schools, had no idea what makes a business succeed. And so the ridiculous narratives played in primetime as believable tales of business acumen. What people watching his show and a majority of the rest of America wanted was a leader who could relieve their financial distress. Trump appeared to provide them with what they yearned for, a hero who cared about them, a man who they believed would champion their desire to escape decades in the economic doldrums. The year that Trump came down the escalator of Trump Tower to announce his campaign for the presidency the economy was actually on the mend, but not fast enough to make up for the devastation caused by the first dot-com bubble bursting at the turn of the century, and then by the 2008 Great Recession, which by some measures caused more harm than the Great Depression of the 1930s. Tens of millions of Americans who worked steadily, took care of their families, and tried to do their best, kept being stymied by circumstances beyond their control. Their wages had stopped rising er decades earlier, 90% of American households had less income adjusted for inflation in 2015 than they had in 1973, according to tax data. Even in households with two working adults, many people struggled to keep afloat. The vast majority of Americans had no savings 
and more than a few relied on payday lenders who charged interest rates that a few decades before would have earned them prison sentences for usury. By 2015, those interest rates had been legitimized by the courts, Congress, and state legislatures. Health insurance plans didn't even fully cover routine care anymore. Pensions were disappearing. Many good-paying jobs, especially in manufacturing and mining, had vanished. Some had gone to China, Mexico, or Vietnam. Others never to return, especially in coal mining, as competitive fuels were cheaper and cleaner. And job security? By 2015, no one's job was secure. Not even those teachers and professors who supposedly had tenure for life. The book by David K. Johnston, The Big Cheat, How Donald Trump Fleeced America and Enriched Himself and His Family. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. And welcome back. Tom Harbin here with you. And on the line with us is our old buddy, Dr. Michael Mann. He is one of the world's top climate scientists, distinguished professor of meteorology and the director of the Earth System Science Center at Penn State University, a member of the National Academy of Sciences and recipient of the Tyler Prize, author of several books, including his most recent, The New Climate War, which is absolutely brilliant. And I want to get him back one of these days soon just to do a really deep dive on that book. Michael Mann with two N's. Dot net is his website, and you can tweet him at Michael E. Mann. Dr. Mann, welcome back to the program. It's, it's so good to have you, and thanks for, for hanging out with us. Uh, thank you, Tom. It's always a pleasure to be with you. Great. So let's, where to start? Uh, <laughs> let, let's start with tipping points. I, the, one of the, I believe it was George Monbiot wrote a piece about this a couple of weeks ago in The Guardian, suggesting that when you look at what seem to be stable systems, like if you spin a top on a table, you know, the little toy, it'll spin and it'll look like it's stable for a little bit. And then it'll start to wobble and then all of a sudden it'll fall over. And that wobble is an indication that it has hit the tipping point where the momentum of the spin can no longer sustain the, the vertical, you know, resistance to gravity. And that that dynamic of instability hearkening tipping points you know, holds true uh, across all kinds of systems, from biological systems, illnesses, to geologic systems, to spaceships. I mean, you know, just name it. And was raising this concern that we're seeing climate instability that seems unprecedented. And might that augur that we're closer to tipping points than we think? Your thoughts, sir? Yeah, sure. Let's unpack that a little bit. You know, there are tipping elements within the climate system. The average temperature of the earth, we don't foresee that going through a tipping point. The more carbon we burn and put into the atmosphere, 
the more the planet warms up. And the climate models have done an excellent job in capturing that warming, predicting that warming. But there are other components, other things that are set in motion as a result of that warming that do contain what we sometimes call nonlinearities, that do contain threshold-like behavior, where if you push them to up to a certain point, they sort of continue to stay with you, but then you push it a little bit more, and off down the hill it goes. It's like a boulder that you push up the side of a mountain. Um, once it gets to the top of the mountain, all it takes is that one extra push, and it's going to go all the way down the mountain. Uh, another analogy I like to use is a cliff. Um, when you go off a cliff, it's not going to help you uh, to have somebody take you back to the top of the cliff. You're done mm -hmm. once you've gone off the cliff. And so we do fear that there are some tipping elements within the climate system. Uh, the temperature of the planet, that seems to be a smooth quantity that increases as we increase the carbon pollution. The amount of sea ice in the Arctic, um, the good news there is while it's diminishing dramatically, and that's a real problem, if we stop the warming, in fact, if we were able to cool the planet back down, the sea ice would come back. It doesn't go through a tipping point. Here's the bad news. The ice sheets, the Greenland ice sheet, the West Antarctic ice sheet, there are all sorts of mechanisms that govern the behavior of those ice sheets that exhibit that nonlinear behavior, that threshold-like behavior. Once you destabilize the ice shelves that are propping up parts of the West Antarctic ice sheet, then the ice starts to surge out into the ocean and it becomes essentially unstoppable on the timescales that are relevant. Once that process is underway, you can't stop it. Even if you could cool the planet back down, it wouldn't stop. You set it in motion, and it sort of takes on a life of its own. So the collapse of the ice sheets is an example of a tipping point. We don't know how far we are at this point from warming the planet enough where we guarantee the, the collapse of large parts of the West Antarctic ice sheet, the part of the Antarctic ice sheet that's near sea level and can contribute readily to, to sea level rise, or the Greenland ice sheet. There's enough ice that could potentially collapse in those two ice sheets to give us 10 meters of sea level rise, 11 meters, 30 or, or more feet of sea level rise. How close we are to the point where we trigger uh, unstoppable collapse of those ice sheets, we don't know. And it's the best argument for not moving any forward. We are like the, the blindfolded uh, person who's approaching the edge of a cliff. The only sensible thing to do is to stop walking forward because you don't mm -hmm. know how close you are to the cliff. And that applies here. Yeah, that's a great metaphor. Um, so what is, what is the actual state of the Greenland ice sheets? I saw a photo actually that kind of went viral maybe two weeks ago of one of the big ice sheets in Greenland that was blue instead of white and you know indicating that this is like there's a massive amount of meltwater here and we need to be concerned about this. Yeah, it was raining at the summit of Greenland uh, a few weeks ago. We've never seen that before. It shouldn't be raining uh, up there at the highest elevation, the sort of center of the Greenland ice sheet, uh, one of the coldest parts of that ice sheet. And so that's a wake-up call that we are seeing uh, melting at the surface of the Greenland ice sheet. Back in 2012, for the first time on record, the satellites were able to measure melting at the surface of the Greenland ice sheet over the entire ice sheet, all the way up to the, the summit in, in North Greenland. And what that means is that the process of melting is underway. It doesn't mean that uh, you know, the, the ice sheet has melted, but that we're starting to see the process of melting, which we call ablation, outpace what we call accumulation. There's been a long-term sort of balance 
when it comes to these ice sheets between the amount of snow that accumulates um, and the amount of melting at the periphery of the ice sheet. And, and that balance keeps the ice sheet in sort of a stable configuration. What we've done now is we've tipped the balance. There's more melting uh, taking place. Um, there isn't uh, nearly enough accumulation to make up for that. And so we're measuring the, the loss of ice from the Greenland ice sheet. In fact, uh, in July of two years ago, July, I believe it was 2019, in one month, in, in, in just that one month of July, there was enough melt from the Greenland ice sheet to raise global sea level uh, sea levels by a measurable amount, by a visually measurable amount, about a half a centimeter. If you were looking very carefully, you could actually see that rise. And that tells us that we are now seeing the, the, the beginning of that process of collapse of these ice sheets and decades ahead of schedule. Uh, the critics love to cite uncertainty, but the uncertainties have not broken in our favor. They've broken against us as we learn more, as we put more of these processes into the climate models, as we see what's happening in the real world, we are becoming aware that some of these impacts are indeed playing out faster than we predicted. And that's not good news. Yeah, it's very much not good news. I know we've discussed this before, but I think it bears revisiting. That's not the only consequence. Rising sea levels, and you know, we live here in Portland, and most of Portland is probably not more than 30 or 40 feet above the Columbia River. And in the Columbia River, just you know, 100 miles down the road, it's the Pacific Ocean. If the oceans go up, the river goes up, I'm assuming, and we're in trouble. I mean, it's just all over the country, there's gonna be people who are in trouble from that. But, but that rising sea level isn't the only consequence. There are also ocean currents that affect our weather patterns. Can you speak to that? The fact that the Greenland ice sheet is losing ice sooner than we expected means there's more fresh water that's being dumped into the North Atlantic as that ice melts and, and flows into uh, the North Atlantic Ocean. That fresh water, that, that fresh water is, light, is uh, lighter than uh, the salty waters that you typically find at those latitudes. And so that decreases the density of the waters at the surface, and that inhibits the sinking motion which is driven by those dense, cold, salty waters. So you make the surface of the ocean there fresher. You inhibit the sinking motion that drives the so-called ocean conveyor, the great ocean conveyor, this warm current that we sometimes equate with the Gulf Stream, but it's really a larger current that actually continues on north into the North Atlantic, heading towards Iceland and warms parts of Europe, warms parts of Greenland, warms parts of eastern Canada, the coastal eastern Canada, maritime regions of North America. And so that current system plays a very important role in those regional climates. And if you collapse that current system, then you can have a pretty dramatic impact on those regional plants, uh, those regional climates. Now, you won't get another ice age like the movie The Day After Tomorrow. That movie was a caricature of the science. Uh, but what you would do is uh, decrease the mixing of ocean waters in the North Atlantic, which is one of our most productive regions in the world when it comes to biological productivity, when it comes to fish populations uh, upon which we rely. Over uh, 25% of the world gets its as its main source of protein, fish and those fish populations would be negatively impacted in one of the most vital natural fisheries in the world. There's a, something else that comes into it, and it has to do with 
some pretty technical physics of how ocean currents work. But as that ocean current slows down or collapses, the sea level in the North Atlantic will actually change in response to that. And sea levels will come up along the east coast of the U.S. even more than we would expect. So you get extra sea level rise along the east coast of the U.S. Yeah, another not good news. Capital N, capital G, capital N. We are talking with Dr. Michael Mann, the uh, distinguished professor of meteorology and the director of the Earth System Science Center at Penn State University. His new book, The New Climate War. Dr. Mann, uh, I wanted to talk to you about kids and despair. This troubles me, and I confess, you know, I, I have been at various times rather hysterical about the climate emergency and, uh, you know, oh my God, you know, we could trigger the new Permian extinction and all this kind of stuff. And what's happening, it appears, is that as many as, well, this is the latest study, 56% of people between 16 and 25 years old are actually immobilized in some ways in their lives by fear of the climate future. And as a result, a lot of people are just saying, screw it, they're becoming climate nihilists. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to protect, which is, of course, exactly what the fossil fuel companies want. You know, like, oh, we're past all the tipping points. There's nothing we can do. Um, speak to those folks, if you could, please. Yeah, thanks, Tom. It's really important. It, it is one of the uh, main points in my book in the new climate war is the, the danger um, of uh, sort of uh, defeatism and uh, despair now that denial itself is on the way because we can all see the impacts of climate change. So the fossil fuel interest, the polluters know they can't get away with trying to convince us that climate change isn't happening, but they've turned to a whole new array of uh, tactics in their effort to keep us from moving on, from moving away from fossil fuels, moving toward renewable energy, clean energy. And so one of the tactics, in fact, is to sort of foment uh, doom-mongering and despair-mongering, because if we truly believe it's too late to do anything about the problem, it potentially leads to disengagement, just the opposite of what we need. And it's understandable. Um, we are, you know, we face this barrage of bad news in our news cycle today, uh, much of it related to the damaging impacts of climate change these days with the devastating extreme weather events that we're seeing play out in real time. It's easy to be overwhelmed by that, and it's easy to fall victim to the sort of doom and despair and this idea that there's nothing we can do about the problem. But as you say, that plays right into the hands of the fossil fuel industry and the forces of inaction, the inactivists, as I call them in the book. And so what we need to do is to recognize that there's some people of goodwill, good intentions, good-hearted people who have fallen into despair, who have fallen victim uh, to some misinformation and disinformation. For example, the claim that runaway warming is underway and there's nothing that we can do to stop it. Um, there are, you know, prominent players in the climate space that continue to try to convince people of that. And it feeds this sense that it's too late uh, to prevent uh, catastrophic warming of the planet. But the science tells us it's not. The science tells us there's huge urgency, and we've been talking about that. We can see why it's urgent that we act now and we act dramatically. 
But there is agency. There is still time to prevent the worst impacts from playing out. And so when you encounter people, friends, family members who have fallen into despair, help them understand the reasons why it isn't too late. Um, and, you know, you can uh, follow me on Twitter, Michael E. Mann. I regularly post information here that I think would be helpful in those efforts to show people the way forward, to help them out of this abyss so that they're back on the front lines demanding action. That's where we need them. Yeah. I think there was a point probably 20 years ago when a little bit of hysteria got attention and maybe caused people to say, okay, we, we need to do something. But uh, 2100. It's a challenge for all of us, Tom. It's a challenge for all of us to find that right balance between, you know, indicating, conveying the urgency, but not implying that we're beyond the point of no return because yeah. we're not. Yeah. There you go. 2,180 scientists around the world have signed on to this worldwide declaration demanding a fossil fuel non-proliferation treaty. What are your thoughts about how we get out of this? Where are the low-hanging fruit? Where are the pressure points that we can, you know, quickly make progress in moving in the right direction and, and, and start the process of maybe some of the longer-term, more difficult challenges as well? Yeah, thanks. I, I was proud to be the lead signatory on that letter. And I think it is time for politicians, for our elected representatives to act on our behalf rather than continuing to be enablers of the fossil fuel industry. We cannot allow any additional fossil fuel infrastructure. Even the conservative International Energy Agency a month ago or so came out and said, if we are to prevent catastrophic warming of the planet more than one in Celsius, three degree Fahrenheit warming of the planet, there can be no new fossil fuel infrastructure. And so it is time for us to demand that our politicians do not green light additional line projects, do not continue to provide subsidies and other incentives to the fossil fuel industry, and instead provide those subsidies and incentives to renewable energy and put a price on carbon and block new fossil fuel infrastructure. These are all things that need to happen. We can't do them ourselves. We need our politicians to do it, and we need to elect politicians who will do it. Amen. Michael Mann with 2Ns.net is the website. You can tweet him at, and follow him at Michael E. Mann, M-A-N-N, -N, on Twitter. And, of course, get his new book, The New Climate War. Dr. Mann, thank you so much for dropping by. It's great, great seeing you again. Thank you, my friend. Good talking with you. Kate in Seattle. Hey, Kate, what's on your mind? Hi, listen, I got to disagree with you in, in an enlightening fashion, and that is there are many, many local groups of local little people like, like me who are organized to put pressure on city government, on state government, on national government to enact policies that affect how we transport ourselves, how we build our buildings, how we construct our agriculture, how we monitor our, our water systems and our forests, 
how we promote our urban forests, and all of these things impact our carbon footprint in a positive way, and you need to become aware of these groups and maybe have some representatives from them to talk to. And a lot of this even started in Portland. Portland has the whole organization going. I would encourage groups to form at a local level. You're absolutely right, Kate. You're absolutely right. And if I just glibly dismissed and said, you know, why, why aren't we building these local groups by, uh, you know, uh, flipping it to national politics, I was wrong. You're absolutely right, Kate. And there are some very, very effective groups all over the country who are doing this work, particularly here in Portland. Good, and I hope you would promote that concept along with the national and international work that has to happen. But the point that I thought I was trying to make was that it's political action rather than personal action that's going to save the world. And what you're saying is that these are political groups. You know, it's not just a bunch of people getting together to recycle cans. They're getting together to push local politicians and change local policy. Exactly. Kate, thank you very much. Thanks for for setting me straight and and our listeners as well. I appreciate it. We will be back same time, same place. In the meantime, don't forget democracy is not a spectator sport. It requires you. Yes, you. That's the demos in demos democracy. So get out there, get active, tag your it. Have a great afternoon. Stay safe and be good to yourself and people around you. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.